But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided itself will be ruined, divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you follow? By whom do your followers drive them out? So then, we'll, so then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather, does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you for this opportunity to be with you this evening. Um, that passage is going to be unpacked a little bit at the end, but uh, there's so many things I wanted to share with you today. Um, the Middle East is a huge subject, as you can imagine. Um, probably you need to invite me back for a one-day seminar on this in the future, but let's uh, just quickly look at the situation in the Middle East in a very brief terms. Somebody put together this very simple chart to help explain it to you, and I think it needs the one-day seminar to go through it, but there are some amazing, it is an amazingly complicated place, it's an amazingly tragic place, but we skip the chart, we'll just look at a few countries. As you will remember, the Arab uprisings took place about four years ago, as people went out to seek change, to find freedom, to find dignity, self-respect, on the streets of Cairo, Syria, Iraq, lots of places people went out to demonstrate. And four years later, it's a disaster. In fact, just Syria alone has been described as the greatest humanitarian disaster since World War II. 250,000 people dead. 10 million people displaced from their homes, 3.5 million of them living as refugees at the moment. Half a million injured, some permanently disabled. Half of all homes, offices, businesses in Syria are partially or totally destroyed. It's a tragedy of enormous dimensions and the sad thing is there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. These refugees that are mounting up every day will continue to mount up. Nothing, there is no solution visible on the horizon at the present time. And people who've tried to mediate have left feeling hopeless in this situation. You've got the situation in Iraq, um, a great tragedy in, in every sense of the word. And I'll come back to that later on. You've got the situation in Yemen, which is somewhat indicative of the whole situation. It's a tension between Sunni and Shia Islam, with Shia Islam being driven or dominated by Iran and their struggle for influence in the region. The Syrian president, Hafsa, uh, Bashir Assad, is 
uh, Shia. He's a, from the Alawites. And he gets support from, from Iran and he gets support from Hezbollah, the militia group in Lebanon that's Shia. And against them are the Saudi wealth, and the Saudi money, the Egyptian power. This is the Sunni bloc. And this conflict is playing out in many parts of the region. You've got Libya, where people were so happy at the overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi. But very soon, without a strong man in control, the country like Yugoslavia disintegrated into ethnic and tribal lines. And today is a harbour for all kinds of weird and wonderful groups, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, in the same way that Yemen is now sheltering Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. It's a tragic situation. And interestingly, the countries that have not been disturbed by the Arab Spring, like Algeria, is simply because, number one, they went through their own civil war in the 90s and have seen the disturbance that can be created. And number two, they look now at their neighbors and they don't want to repeat the same scenario. Tunisia is a bright spot. It progressed through a series of um, elections and disturbances, got rid of its president. It had an Islamic al-Nahda party, moderate Islamic group elected into power. And then recently they were elected out of power. That's the first transition, if you like, of this kind, apart from Lebanon in this region and where a president has left office by being voted out instead of being carried out in a box or fleeing on his private jet. So it's exciting to see at least one glimmer of hope here. Egypt's been through two revolutions, and I'm sure you followed that through the diocese there, where the Muslim Brotherhood, by sheer numbers, got into power and then failed to deliver on their promise that Islam is the solution. They were, the president was removed from office after 30 million Egyptians came out on the street to demonstrate against him in June two years ago. And this was followed by a very ugly period where, as bad losers, the Muslim Brotherhood went around attacking Christians, burning churches, burning Christian institutes, attacking Christian businesses, trying to provoke, if you like, a small civil war to show the ineptitude of the military government that had ousted President Morsi. But instead of responding with violence, the Christians instead uh, went and painted on the walls of their churches, we forgive you, we love you. We had a, a lady go on a live show uh, on Sat7 and share how she forgave those that killed her husband and who destroyed her church. The amazing forgiveness and love of Christians in this situation had a profound impact. We could go on and talk about Sudan and other areas, but I'd like to just kind of move on to some of the, the signs of hope, if you like. And I, I've mentioned, in a way, one of them, but I was um, in Iraq just a few days before ISIS moved into Mosul and took over the plains of Nineveh. I had a, was very privileged to meet with different church leaders in the country and the Minister of Interior and some of his lieutenants who were responsible for the security uh, of Christians. And, and all the churches there are surrounded by this ugly blast walls with barbed wire on the top and a 24-7 security detachment outside each church. 
But the Shia-led government there a year ago was really making an effort to protect Christians. And they, they and the church leaders told me about a survey that had been conducted <coughs> excuse me, recently in Iraq that showed that 32% of Iraqis, and this was before ISIS crisis, 32% of Iraqis had given up on religion. They had been unable to reconcile Muslims killing Muslims in the name of their common God. They couldn't make sense of it. And so they either become atheists, which in the context of the Arab world is shocking. I mean, to become an atheist is, I can't, don't know what to compare it with in this country. It's like becoming a drug addict and prostitute all rolled into one. It just is a social anathema. To deny God exists is actually apostasy, which is punishable by death in many families and, and countries. But this offers a great opportunity. People are looking for a God that makes sense, and they're finding it in Christianity. They, saw, they see it in the way Christians have responded to persecution. There's also been great disillusionment with political Islam, as I mentioned um, in Egypt, the case there. This whole movement towards democracy is very strange. It's not just a question of one man, one vote. In such a case, you get the majority group, in this case the Muslim Brotherhood, getting the most votes and getting into power. And the Muslim Brotherhood themselves said, Islam is sort of, like, sorry, democracy is like a bus. We'll use it to go to where we want to go and then we'll get off it. And that was their attitude, that we would use it to get elected and then we would bring in a really God-centered religious order where man doesn't interfere with the appointments of leadership in the country. But having failed and having seen the abuse and the, the loss of trust that there was in the leadership after the one-year experiment with the Muslim Brotherhood in charge of Egypt, political Islam is now pretty much dead and people would rather have security than freedom they would rather have stability than the right to demonstrate in the streets. There's also another encouragement, and that's been the growing responses. We used to get you know, calls and emails and texts and postings from people in Saudi, but not to the level that we get them today. One in four homes today in Saudi Arabia is watching our Sat7 Kids program. This is an independent survey by Muslims, uh, Muslim marketing companies in Saudi Arabia phoning Saudis and asking them about which channels they watch. And so we know the number's not exaggerated because a Muslim answering such a survey on the phone in a country where there are no churches and no Christian activities allowed is not going to admit that they're watching Christian television and they're not going to admit that they're letting their children watch a Christian television channel, Sat7 Kids. So it's amazing to see the impact or the hunger there is for something that makes sense, of something that they can trust. And the reason Muslim parents today are letting their children watch this channel, they say to us, is we know that we won't, our children will not be suddenly exposed to some act of violence. They won't be... Um, encouraged to become martyrs or shahad or suicide bombers. They're not going to be given extremist ideas. And they see the positive behavior in the children. 
They see them being polite to their siblings and nice to their parents, rather than jumping all over the furniture and hitting each other with rolls of newspaper as they do after watching the Cartoon Network. So it's, it's really been very encouraging. And so these kids are learning Christian songs and scripture in song and watching Bible cartoons and so on. I mentioned the power of forgiveness and we'll look at a clip in a minute about that, but also the ability to offer a God that makes sense, to help shape the next generation through the kids' channel. When we went to Iraq, we had two teams from Egypt go in to record materials a few weeks ago. One of them we're going to see a clip, but the other team went to a Yazidi camp. Yazidis are a Muslim sect. They're not taken care of by Muslims or Shia or Sunni, and not taken care of by the church especially. They live in a very miserable existence as a sort of persecuted Islamic sect. And we turned up at the entrance to the refugee camp with our camera crew and they said, um, where's your permit? We said, we don't have a permit. So the man said, go away. We have people coming here filming our misery. They go away, nothing changes. Why should you come in? Anyway, who are you? So they said, we're from Sat7. Oh, Sat7, Sat7 kids, you can come in. So it was great. They went in and the presenter of a weekly show was um, with them. And all the children came running up and said hello. They recognized him. We recorded songs with these Yazidi girls who had memorized Christian songs from their time back home watching Sat7 Kids. Those songs have stayed in their minds and they were part, probably going to be with them for the rest of their lives. So it's exciting to see how we can shape the next generation. One of the things we're working on now is uh, a schooling for Syrian refugee kids. We've started with 90 minutes a day of teaching mathematics and Arabic and English, which is a marketable skill, on air, uh, repeated twice, to Syrian children and the other 20 million Arab kids who are out of school that should be in school according to UN statistics last month. So this is also another way of shaping young minds. We're also seeing a growth in social media. Obviously young people, as you all know, are not watching linear broadcast television so much. They're really wanting to see what they want, when they want on the device of their choosing, in the place of their choosing. Video on demand or social media of different sorts on demand at their convenience. And this is happening in the Middle East, although to a much lesser extent than it is in the Western world, mainly because the censorship on the internet, there's a limited access to the internet, and also it requires literacy to navigate the internet, which is still a huge problem in the region. I'm going to show you just a short part of a clip that's gone viral. It's been viewed by millions of people in the last couple of weeks, been translated into Chinese, Portuguese, uh, Spanish, Greek, all kinds of different languages. And it's been picked up by secular Arabic television stations. In fact, one Lebanese station called for this video to be shown in every classroom in Lebanon because it talks about forgiveness. As Christians, we may not see this as very radical. But in the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth culture of the Middle East, what this girl, this 10-year-old girl, says with confidence and with faith really shook the Middle East in, in recent days. So let's just play that video, if we can. 
you can watch the full thing on YouTube if you would like to see all of it. She ends up also singing a Christian song, which is very beautiful, but you're not going to see it tonight because I've only got a few minutes left. In fact, we're not going to see any other video I think we'll, we'll leave it here. It does go on. It's a very interesting, she's a very confident in her faith 10-year-old uh, refugee from Iraq. And uh, it really has moved millions of people uh, as they've viewed that. Let's go back to the slides if we can. Just want to sort of Okay, we have to. Yeah, just want to look at the scale of the problem here. We're talking about the 1040 window, the whole western end of it. Over half a billion people, mostly Muslims. And this is the area in which we're working. And it's an area that's growing by a million people a month in terms of population growth. It's an area of low literacy. It's an area where people are very dependent on television. When you have a television, it's an endless source of free information, free entertainment, keeps the kids at home. Um, it, it's escapism from the grinding poverty in which you live. And up until the 90s, television was very much controlled by governments. With the advent of satellite television that began in the early 90s, people began to get access for the first time in their life to uncensored news and information, even the illiterate can access this kind of uh, material. And so it was a wonderful opportunity for Christians. But it was very difficult for us to start. Uh, people were afraid, they didn't want to go in front of a camera, they said, what would the government do to me? It's not like radio where I don't have to show my face. People thought we would be jammed. How would we fund it? Where would we get the people? 
and the music clips and the videos and the drama and the teaching programs. None of it existed in the 90s. So it was very hard beginning. We started with two hours a week of television and after a year we managed to expand that to two and a half hours a week of television. We called ourselves a channel but we were really sharing a channel with four or five other groups including TV Albania and TV Romania. So it was a very slow beginning. Um, today we're broadcasting 800 hours a week in three languages on three different satellite systems and it's a very exciting time. We'll come to that. But this is what we see as we go through the Middle East today. Satellite dishes everywhere um, and it's just so many people have this as a, as a priority. Before you get a bed, before you get a refrigerator, you get yourself a satellite dish. It was the first thing people bought when Saddam Hussein was ousted from power. They'd been deprived of satellite television and now it's one of our most responsive areas. Because it's the only source of uncensored information and entertainment in the region. Yes, some people do have internet, it's very important, but it's heavily censored, very expensive, sometimes un unavailable, and certainly for the illiterate, not accessible. There are three major language blocks in the Middle East. There's about 360 million Arabic speakers. There's another 100 million that speak Persian or Farsi or some dialect of Farsi. And another 100 million that speak Turkish or Turkic language like Azeri. And these major broadcast languages are an opportunity for us in terms of satellite television having a wide reach. And we use the European satellite to broadcast both in Persian and in Arabic into this region, covering all the Arab countries and Iran and parts, other parts of Central Asia that speak a Persian dialect. And we also use the Egyptian-owned Nilesat system to broadcast two Arabic channels, one just for children, as you heard. And then, more recently, we've been able to get onto the Turkish-owned Turksat system with the 24-7 Turkish channel. This was a very recent development. For 10 years we've been trying to get permission to get onto this satellite system, but it's been very controlled by Islamic groups. They haven't even answered our phone calls in most cases, unless we've got a European member of parliament to write to them. And then about two years ago they said they were open to an application for a broadcast license. So we began the process, we went through restructuring our company in Istanbul, we applied for a license, we paid our $100,000 upfront 10-year broadcast license fees and amazingly in September we were given the license and amazingly a week later when they launched the new Turksat 4A satellite and were just commissioning it, there we were. We started broadcasting at midnight along with all the other channels. We were so excited, 13 hours later we disappeared. We called Turksat and they said, oh well your payment was um, two hours late arriving, a technicality. And apparently there is somebody in the Turksat organization that didn't want us there under any circumstances on the satellite. So we were very discouraged. We went to visit some other people that had spare capacity on the satellite. They said, oh yes, you, you can have one of our channels, no problem. Two hours later they phoned back and say, there seems to be a technical problem and I'm afraid we can't offer you the service. And this went on all through September, through October, through November, and the team were getting very discouraged there, the Sat7 Turk team. And then just a few days after Christmas, one of the TV channels that had a capacity and had turned us down before came and said, we have 
uh, channel. We've looked at your broadcast on the internet and we're willing to give it to you. And we went on air just a few hours before midnight. And it was very exciting, but we didn't say anything. We didn't say anything all through January, the first two weeks of February. We just waited to see if there was going to be a negative reaction from anybody in the uh, Turksat organization, but nothing. And we're still broadcasting every day. And it's a really exciting to see the growing responses there are to Turksat. Some of you will have seen Christian television, but none of you, I don't think, will have seen Christian television as Sat7 does it. We do not sell our airtime. We don't have talking head after talking head. We don't have a lot of American programs. All our programming is, or 80% of our programming is made in Arabic or Turkish or Farsi. The only things that we dub or subtitle are good quality films, good quality documentaries, animation for children. We do not sell our airtime. And so we have a schedule on all of these satellites that's designed to meet the needs, interests, the opinions, the felt needs of our viewers. And people may get just in interested initially through a film. They may get interested through a discussion program. In fact, a theological program may be a way of evangelizing a sincere Muslim. Many Muslims really want to please God. They really want to know God. And sometimes a Christian teaching program about the grace of God or something will resonate with a Muslim who's hungry to know and to please God. We're dealing with a very religious culture. So we have lots of different films, um, teaching programs, we have music, we have live call-in programs, we have drama. Drama is obviously the best television format for attracting audiences, but it's also very difficult to produce. We have uh, straightforward Christian teaching, lots of music, especially on the kids' channel, um, systematic teaching programs that are worked on with uh, seminaries in the region, so they're curriculum-driven, they're not random teaching, they're trying to cover all the different subjects and the whole, if you like, um, teachings uh, that you get in a seminary. And we dub films. We also have what we call social impact programming that looks at you know, disability issues, uh, women's issues, uh, health, safety, hygiene issues, and so on, that kind of complement the holistic approach that we take. I won't take time to go over these. Uh, there's lots of good quotes you can get from the literature at the back. Um, we do have offices in different places, support offices in North America, UK and Denmark, and we also have production centers in Egypt, we have studios there, Lebanon, Istanbul and Cyprus, and also a small production center in West London, where we broadcast live into Iran each night, each weekday night. These are some of the scenes from these centers, Lebanon, Egypt, Turkey, I'm sorry, I'm going to rush through them, this is the West London production center. We have two basic thrusts to Sat7 as a mission. One is to make the gospel available to everyone, but especially to children who are the most open to change and the only real hope for tomorrow. Especially to women whose influence within society and family has always been grossly underestimated and who have less social mobility and are less likely to get any access to Christian information. And to people in closed homes, in closed countries. People who've never perhaps even met a Christian in their whole life. And a second major thrust is to support the church in its work of witness for Christ. 
Christianity was born in the Middle East and it doesn't make sense for it to come from North America into the Middle East as a sort of foreign import along with previous bad experiences like the Iraq War or the Crusades. What we want to do is to give a platform for Middle Eastern Christians to witness in their own societies and they're quite capable of doing that in a very unique way without a foreign accent, without unnecessary cultural baggage. So that's been very exciting to see Christians, all our producers and staff in Egypt are Egyptians, all our staff in Lebanon are Lebanese, all our staff in Turkey are Turkish. It's only our international office in Cyprus where we have a complete mess, 17 different nationalities out of 40. What a nightmare. I really need to wrap up. I think I've lost track of the time, but I'm sure it's running. I'd like to say this though, People in the Middle East are often perceived as unreachable. And there's many reasons for that. They have been protected from hearing the gospel. Their societies have been very rigidly controlled. But the truth is that most Muslims are not resistant to the gospel. In fact, they're much easier to share the gospel with than secular Europeans. They believe in God. They believe in right and wrong. They believe in sin. They believe in a judgment day. They believe in Jesus as a special miracle working prophet. They believe in a judgment day at which Jesus will be their judge. But they have great insecurity in that because even if they did enough good things to outweigh the bad things and when they put in the scale on the judgment day, God is so great as part of their call to prayer, God is great, that he can send a good person to hell and a bad person to heaven. He doesn't need to keep rules, he's so great. So there's an insecurity about eternity. If you were looking to define someone ready for the good news of the gospel, wouldn't it be these people? Yes, it would. So why haven't we seen so much response in, in the past? Well, one, they haven't heard, and two, those that did respond have been so severely dealt with by their family, by their society, that it was a major discouragement for them to um, can, to, for anyone to go and declare themselves a Christian. But these things are changing. People are beginning to hear. Before it was just through Christian radio which reached mostly young men and that's why the church in Morocco grew initially was made up almost entirely of university students, male, unmarried, no home for a house group. Now television is getting whole families to watch together and whole families are becoming Christian a much stronger building block in a culture like the Middle East. People since the Arab Spring also expect the right to believe what they want and more than that now to practice that belief without persecution. It's not happening yet but the seeds are sown. It's going to be very difficult to turn the clock back and we're seeing more and more change in attitudes, the way people speak openly on the phone about their new faith despite the risks that it brings to them. So it's not that they're resistant, it's mostly that they haven't heard and this is changing. So expect great things in the days ahead. I could talk about this, but I would just perhaps like to mention prayer as we close. Your contribution is great through prayer. The reading we looked at just now from the book of Luke was interesting. It's a very interesting and complex conversation that's going on here with lots of subplots. But it's this one or two verses um, in verse 21 of Luke 11 
that says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Uh, the Muslim world today calls itself Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam. And the strong man in that house is very much the Arab, the Arabs. They are the guardians of the holy places, Mecca, Medina. The Quran was written in Arabic. The tr missionary training school for the Arab, for the Muslim world is in Al-Azhar in Egypt, in Cairo. It's petrodollars from the Gulf that are funding mission and the building of new mosques everywhere and has fermented, funded much of the, the problems that we've seen in Syria and in Iraq and in Libya. It's foreign money from the Gulf that's interfering and disturbing what were peaceful demonstrations, making in them into violent demonstrations and so on. So let's pray for the Arab world especially. Because if we see the, the strong man in the house of Islam tied and defeated, his house, the house of Islam, globally can be looted and plundered. Maybe it's not a great analogy in some respects, and this is not a politically correct analogy in today's society, but it is one I think that has strong um, meaning as we pray for the Middle East in these days. I guess I'm going to, there was a few prayer requests, so I'm happy to share those if anybody has time. I'd like to invite the church to take part in our day of prayer, the first Sunday of each November. The next one is the first of November. And I will, I think, should stop here. Thank you very much.